The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Rabbi, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now these guys, of course, always antagonistic to Jesus, are looking for a way to sort of pin him. So they say to him, you know, pick, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said unto them, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus responds by saying, well, the greatest commandment is obvious. It's love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But he says the second comes right next to it. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, these two specific commands, if you fulfill those, you will fulfill all of the law and the prophets. Everything that was being requested of God through the law and through the prophets in the Old Testament, 613 commands in the Old Testament, and every single one of them was summed up or came under the umbrella of either loving God or loving your neighbor. Presently, the word friend is all the rage. But what does it mean? You know, as with all words, it it has a meaning, but the meaning is often lost through the abuse and sometimes the overuse of the word. People use it in, in, in imprecise ways. And as a result, the definition of what it actually is gets muddied. For instance, we use friend in reference to social media, and we use it like a verb. Oh, I friended so-and-so, or they friended me on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, right? It's used as a verb in, in this sense. Other people use it as a noun, like Quakers, Quakers use the word friend to describe those who are members of their church. So you're a friend if you're a part of that religious group. Others use it as a descriptor, sort of an adjective. It's like this this thing that we make as a statement about someone else that describes their behavior or engagement with us. Friend is one of these words that gets used often but seldom defined. 
There's an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar who is from Oxford, and he's been looking into the issue of social capacity since the 1990s. He discovered that the average person has a capacity for tracking about 150 relationships at any given time. This is often referred to as the, the Dunbar number, this number of 150. Now he formulated this number based upon the size of the, of the neocortex in the brain, and he had this hypothesis that the part of our brain that engages relational, uh, relationally only has so much capacity. And so the bigger the brain, the, more, the greater the capacity, and the smaller the brain, the smaller capa- the capacity. So based upon some, some studies that he had been doing, uh, he came up with this number of 150. But below the 150 are varied degrees of closeness and intimacy. And ar- every time you add a qualifier for closeness or for intimacy within a relationship, the number or the capacity for which you are able to maintain those relationships reduces by a third. So the Dunbar number is actually a series of them, and the best known, 150, is the number of people we call sort of casual friends. The people say that you would invite to a a, a large party. And from there, the qualitative interviews, coupled with the analysis of experimental and survey data, Dunbar discovered that the number grows and decreases according to a precise formula. This formula is the rule of three. So you can have 150 people that you know casually and would invite to a party and would like to be friendly with. But if you add a couple of qualifiers and you say, who would you like to have over for dinner? That number drops to about 50. There's a list of about 50 people. And then if you say, who do you want to spend the most time with? Now it drops down to 15. And then you say, who can you really depend on? And the number drops to five. The capacity to have people that you depend on, that you would run to in crisis, is actually only about five people. Can you see why it's so confusing in the social media age? Because in our minds we use the word friend to describe all these connections that we have, but, but in actuality we're actually only able to be close friends, intimate friends, with about five people. Now some people have tried to challenge the Dunbar number. And, uh, and this is specifically related to social media. Michigan State University researcher Nicole Ellison surveyed a random sample of undergraduates about their Facebook use. And she found while their median number of Facebook friends was 300, they only counted an average of 75 actual friends in their Facebook list. And matter of fact... She sums it up by saying this, what Facebook does and why it's been so successful in so many ways is that it allows you to keep track of people who you would otherwise effectively lose track of and they would disappear from your mind. See, this is the reality. We have limitations. We have a capacity 
A capacity for friendships is limited. Now, when you think about that, that means then that you are going to have to be conservative about how you use your emotional energy. About the ways in which you engage with people, about who you give your heart to in fullness, who you let into your life. Because you have a limited capacity for true, deep, and meaningful friendship, that means that you're going to have to come up with some sort of grid in your mind that helps you to understand the levels of intimacy and closeness to those around you. Now, this is a little bit confusing. I have to admit, this is something I have had to grow at over the course of time. Uh, My wife famously... Uh, at one point in our marriage, I was, I was telling a story and I said, hey, I got, this, I got this friend, I got this buddy over in Grant's Pass and he does so and so. And she goes, oh, really? Uh, what's your buddy's last name? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> right? But everybody was my buddy. Everybody was my friend. If I knew you and I knew your first name, that qualified you, you were my friend. And so I used the term interchangeably with a lot of people. And consequently, actually, I found that my relationship suffered because there was no real definition around who was an actual friend to me and where I would make those investments. A lot of times, I would, I would invest myself shallowly in lots and lots of relationships and never truly be known or close with anyone. So, question here. How did Jesus teach us and model for us relationships? How did he relate to others? Now our primary passage here is a a launch point into this discussion where we're going to dive a little bit deeper and look at some other places in Scripture. But I I think it's going to be interesting for us to discover that actually Jesus did not seek to be close and intimate friends with everyone. He embraced the limitations of his friendships, of being a human, of having a capacity to be close with only some. Now, this was confusing to me early on because I didn't really study to understand the ways in which Jesus layered his friendships. And then some of the teachings of Jesus actually seem to say the opposite. Like, what do we do with passages like this? Where he says, you know, the the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, uh, and strength. You know, you do that first. But then, what about loving your neighbor? Like, who is my neighbor? (laughs) Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, Jesus says to the crowd who's listening to him preach the Sermon on the Mount, he says to them, you know, if you come up to the altar in the temple to worship, and then you remember that, that there's somebody who has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled unto your brother and then come back and worship me. 
In other words, there's such a high priority placed on relationship that if you realize that there's some division in a friendship, that there's some division between you and your neighbor, that you, that you should not worship until you make the relationship right. He places relational equity and peace and unity above even sacrificial worship in that place. That's a pretty high cost that's placed on friendship. And so if if you just take those types of passages, it's really easy to think in the back of your mind, okay, well, I'm just supposed to love everyone. You guys might remember in Luke chapter 10, in verses 25 to 34, you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it's interesting, the prelude, before Jesus gives this parable of, of a man who gets beaten, left on the road, the, the, the priest and the Levite pass him by, and then the Samaritan comes along and, and cares for him and puts him up in the inn and, and nurses his wounds and, and takes care of this guy who was beaten and robbed. Great story. But did you know that it's a response to this very issue? There was somebody who said... Jesus, I, I want to follow you. What are the commandments that I need to fulfill? Jesus tells them the exact same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the guy says, well, so who is my neighbor? <laughs> do, I, do I have to love everyone? I mean, it's a great question if you think about it. I, I think I wrestle with that question. It, did you really mean love everyone are there some people who don't qualify for love well jesus answers that in another passage also found in the sermon on the mount in matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through 48 jesus said we're to love even our enemies right love our enemies so It's confusing when you think about it because you think, okay, the goal then for me as a believer is to love everyone. And in my mind then, that means I need to take all of these relationships, all the relationships that I have with everyone and drive them down to the most intimate parts of my life in order for me to really love them well. But did you know that Jesus also set limitations for his relationships? Keep a finger here, but then flip with me over to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. John, chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. So that a crowd begins to gather, lots of people begin to believe that he is indeed the Messiah because they see the miracles that he's doing. But read verse 24 and 25 with me. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You see, he placed a limitation there. He did not entrust himself to the crowds. He knew that they were fickle. 
He knew that the crowds that cheered for him today called him Messiah or the crowds that would accompany him into Jerusalem when he came riding in on a donkey on the triumphal entry, that one day they would cheer him and then the next day they would jeer him. The next day they would rebuke him and mock him and spit on him. He knew not to trust himself to the masses. Jesus was loving towards all, but friends with few. You see, not everyone, and hear this, this is going to sound very unpastorly, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you that right up front. Not everyone is worthy or safe for depth in friendship. Not everyone is worthy or safe for depth in friendship. You cannot entrust your heart to everyone or to anyone. You need to be selective. Matter of fact, the wisdom literature in the Proverbs give us lots of qualifiers about the types of friends we should avoid. tells us that there are godly friends. Proverbs 13, 20 says this, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. There are some people you should not be companions with. You'll suffer as a result. Just straight up right here in the scriptures for us to read, to, for us to learn from and apply to life. If you are friends with an idiot, you will become an idiot. Okay? We need to have godly friends. Not only that, but Proverbs talks about fake friends. In Proverbs chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, it says this, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend of a man who gives gifts. Ever seen that? Someone who has resources, somebody who doesn't, they buddy up, they're networking. And really, though it appears that they are friends on the surface, in reality, when the resource goes away, so does the friendship. Yet we're called to be generous. We're called to be generous with the people around us. And yet also to understand that sometimes people around us have sinful agendas. This happens true when it comes to money and wealth and and, and, and resources, but also this happens relationally as well. Some people use friendship as a, as a way to, to move up in society or to gain an advantage. Sometimes they use private, intimate, personal information as a way to elevate themselves around another person. Proverbs 17.9 says this, whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. 
Sometimes relational closeness is used as collateral to, to gain friendship or advantage relationally with another person. And that's the, that's the tendency of a gossip. And we should be careful about friendships with gossips. Because if somebody is gossiping to you, they will eventually gossip about you. We know that's the truth, don't we? Proverbs warns us about angry or abusive friendships in Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. It says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. We learn about painful friends, friends who are invasive in Proverbs 25, 17. Friends who are undependable in Proverbs 25, 19. Friends who are not compassionate in Proverbs 25, 20. We also learn about devoted friends and how they are present. How a, a brother is born for adversity in Proverbs 17, 17. How they're practical. How they, they see a need in Proverbs 18, 24. And care for their friends. How they're sanctifying. They're honest. An enemy will stab you in the back, but a friend will stab you in the chest, right in the heart. He'll come to you, she'll come to you and say, you know what, you got an issue and you need to deal with it. I love you too much to watch you walking into sin and heartache and heartbreak. They're sanctifying friends who are honest and sanctifying friends who are comforters, who continue to stay with you in the day of trouble. You see, and this is, this is the thing. If everybody is to be loved equally and to be pushed down into the most intimate places of our hearts, how many ways can we split our attention? And not only that, what about people who are not worthy or trustworthy of that depth or that level of closeness and intimacy in our lives? What do we do? I had a pastor friend who was actually very instrumental in helping me understand this in a, in a more clear way. And he gave me this illustration. If I could pull up this slide here. He gave me the illustration of, of an inverted triangle here. At the bottom of the triangle are the most intimate relationships. At the top of the triangle, where it is the widest, are the least intimate relationships. So at, at, at a base layer, at the, at the widest part, you can relate to somebody on the basis of humanity. You suck oxygen, I suck oxygen, we're on this planet together, I relate to you. And then maybe there might be some other things that, you, that would cause a, a greater depth of relationship or ability to relate to one another. Perhaps it is language. We both speak the same language and we can talk and communicate with one another. Now, not just do I see you as a human made in the image of God, we share humanity, but now also we can share dialogue and discussion. And we can relate on that level. Then perhaps culture. Not only do we both speak the same language and we can dialogue with one another, but we were raised in a similar background and we can understand where the other is coming from. We get one another's culture 
And there's a greater level of closeness and intimacy. And then you can narrow it down even further. And you go, okay, sometimes also you run into somebody who has similar interests as you. And, and, and not only are you able to speak and communicate and relate as humans and, and, and maybe share some of the same culture, but also you have some of the same passions. And as a result, there's this connection that takes place. I see this in guys who served in the military or firefighters. There's this brotherhood because they understand, they get the, the culture that they're immersed in and they have, the similar, they have similar interests and similar passions and they connect with one another, another at a deeper level as a result or as a consequence. And then the deepest level is, is fellowship. Deep and true fellowship. Now, this was helpful in like seeing it visually, but one of the things that he said to me that was so powerful, he said, I used to think that the goal was to take all the people at the top and shove them down into the bottom. That's what I used to think. But God has taught me over time to learn to appreciate the layers and to not try and force them to greater levels of closeness and intimacy. It gives me joy in relationships to be able to say, hey, you suck oxygen, I suck oxygen. I like you. And even more so to say, hey, it's nice to be able to talk with you. I enjoy sharing conversation. And not feeling the need to force something else to happen, but letting it be what it is. Accepting limitation is a part of being healthy relationally. You see, Jesus did this perfectly. Jesus had to work within the limitations of human relationships. Matter of fact, you kind of hear this. You kind of hear a hint of this when Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm, I'm going away. But in my absence, I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, this is a better option. <laughs> it's good that I go away in order that the comforter may come. Because Jesus was living within the limitations of a human body and a human existence. He could only be in one place at one time. He says, it's, I can't wait for the Holy Spirit, the comforter to come, and for this sharing to take place that is not limited by the confines of time. And space. So Jesus had to work within the limitations of human relationships. He was excellent at loving all and even loving his enemies, but he chose to invest himself more fully in fewer relationships. Here in this passage, we see his first priority, right? He says in, in Matthew, going back to Matthew 22, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he says, verse 38, this is the great and first commandment. So my number one priority is my relationship with the Father. Loving Him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind. That's my first priority. And then after that comes human relationships. And so already we see that there is a sort of pecking order, if you will. And I would say that, that 
loving God causes you to love others well. (laughs) They go hand in hand. Absorbing life, receiving life from God and relating to him and surrendering your heart to him and loving him well will make you a better friend in life, a better neighbor to others. But here, Jesus places friendship with God first. Next, you could say that he places friendship within marriage and children next. You say, well, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't married. How do you see that? Well, I think you could say it this way. Jesus was fully committed to his bride, the church, first and foremost. You can say that the bride of Christ was the single most important pursuit of his life. It's something that John the Baptist even makes reference to at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Listen to what John the Baptist says when he, when he was being questioned about the fact that all his disciples were leaving to go and to follow Jesus. In John 3, verse 29, he says this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Again, in other places, we're told that that Jesus referred to the relationship that he had with his people as that of a a bridegroom and a bride. This comes up... I couldn't quite hear you. Uh-oh. Siri got kicked off here. He related to the church as the bridegroom. This comes up with a question about fasting. Jesus responds to the Pharisees when questioned that the bride will not mourn or fast when the, gri- when the bridegroom is present with them. Talking about his disciples not f- practicing fasting. It comes up repeatedly in the parables as Jesus compares his relationship with the church or the kingdom those who are members of it as a bride and a bridegroom. He talks, he uses the analogy of marriage to talk about the fact that he's going to prepare a place for his bride, the church. And so to the married, there is this principle then that God comes first and then Jesus' love for his bride is also imitated in us and our love for our wife or husband and our children that marriage becomes that second tier. Now, as a side note, I I just have to say something. I have heard it said from the pulpit to pastors. If you take care of your family, God will take, or excuse me, if you take care of God's family, God will take care of yours. And that's a way of saying, you know, pastors, if you just invest yourself in the church, if you just love the church really well, then God will take care of your family. So it's okay if you don't come home for dinner. It's okay if you're not around your kids a whole lot because you're investing in God's family and God will will take care of yours. I just want you to know that's the stupidest, most asinine advice I've ever heard. It's absolutely foolish. As a matter of fact, What qualifies a man to care for the church, according to the New Testament, is that he is caring for actively his wife and his children. For how can a man care for the flock of God if he doesn't care for his own wife? 
So let's put that to rest. That's a side note, freebie on me. But you say, okay, Jeremy, I'm, I'm not married. So how does that work? Well, here's the beauty of it. Jesus also is the example in singleness. <laughs> Even though Jesus was single and unmarried his whole life, it was his ultimate desire to gather his bride and, and to be united with the church. His priority then was serving the body of Christ, serving the kingdom of God, and serving the Lord. Paul echoes this same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 to 35, he says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. And his interests are divided out of necessity. And the, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And I say this for your benefit, not to lay restraint upon you, to pr- but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He says to singles within the church at Corinth, listen, ra- relax, rest in the relationship that you have with the Lord. Let that be the first priority. And in doing so, you are going to find great joy in that. Don't seek to become entangled in, in, in a relationship. Don't obsess about those things. Enjoy the fact that you can have undivided devotion towards the Lord and towards the service of his kingdom. So Jesus also sets the example in that. Okay, so then we've, we've got love God. Marriage and family if you're married. If you're not married, you're, you're devoted to the Lord. What comes next? Well, then comes family of origin. Now, while it's true that the family of origin and friendships often are elevated to the same level in our society, the Bible actually does not order them in the same regard. You'll remember in the Ten Commandments that one of the commandments specifically is to honor your father and and your mother. Now, contextually, this talked this was talking about the fact that they didn't have a retirement system and they didn't have, you know, homes to stick your parents into. So what you would do then is you assumed responsibility for your parents. You honored them physically by taking care of them as they aged. You did not abandon them. And this is one of the the Ten Commandments in the Scriptures. To honor your father and to honor your mother. Now, again, this gets re, uh, reaffirmed in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul is giving instruction to the church, and, he, and he's talking about the care of widows. People, are, these are, are, are women or men who have, have lost uh, their spouse and are not able to take care of themselves. The church assumed responsibility for those folks. But then in 1 Timothy 5 verse 4, Paul gives a qualifier of saying, the only widows that the church should be taking care of are those who don't have family. Otherwise, the family's obligation is to take care of those who are in that position of vulnerability. 
So, God places a higher priority on your family of origin. And then next comes friendship. God, marriage, family of origin, friendship. Now, there were lots of people who followed Jesus around. They believed his teaching. They were invested in his kingdom. But among them, his friends were first. Jesus loved his friends uniquely. He spent most of his time with his friends. He allowed them access to his struggles. Think about like the Garden of Gethsemane. When he calls Peter, James, and John, he says, come away and pray with me. Right? They saw him in anguish. They saw him sweating drops of blood. He invited them into that experience. He brought them along at the tomb of Lazarus. He shared his truest identity at the Mount of Transfiguration. He gave the closest, deepest look at his real heart and character to specific friends. Not even the whole twelve. Three among the twelve were invited to come and be a part of that. He shared meals, activities, vacations at the beach. He went to the lake at the Sea of Galilee. They worked together. They ministered together. They suffered together. They stood together. He cared for their families. Perhaps you'll remember the story in the Gospels where where Jesus comes to Peter's mother-in-law, who's sick at the time, and he heals her and raises her up. Jesus was a great friend. And his friendships didn't take away from his relationship with his father, didn't take away from his love for his bride, or his commitment to the family, his family of origin. Remember, remember when Jesus was at the cross, at the moment that he is paying for the sins of the world, displaying his love for all, in that very moment, he looks down from the cross, and he cares for his own mother in fulfilling the fifth commandment. And he says to John, John, behold your mother. Mom, behold your son to John the Apostle. He cares for her even in his last dying moments. It didn't mess up his priorities. But he did pour more into his friendships than he did into the rest of believers that followed Jesus around. He cared for them uniquely. And this is demonstrated again and again and again throughout the Gospels. There's a moment where where John the Baptist is beheaded and Jesus receives the news. And what he does is immediately he grabs his disciples and says, hey guys, we need to retreat. We need to get away. The crowds were following him. And then there comes a point where in in the middle of that, he, he can't get away from the crowd. So he stops, he ministers to the crowd, and then as soon as he's done ministering to the crowd and feeding them and and caring for them he grabs his disciples once again he says okay back on track let's go away let's be together we need some time to process it to recuperate so jesus loved god first marriage family second right family of origin third friendships were prioritized over the crowds and the crowds i could say are analogous to 
the people that gather. You know, think about this. On, on Every Sunday, there's a, a crowd of people that gathers as Jesus' followers. And as they gather, we're all here. Now, there's a lot of pressure to, like, get connected to one another. And for good reason. We know that discipleship happens within a context of community. And so our desire as, as, as a church and specifically from the leadership, is that you would be connected with one another. It's one of the reasons that we created huddle groups. It's one of the reasons that we have small Bible studies. We want you to get connected to one another, to begin to develop deep and meaningful friendships and relationships, especially if you don't have them. Okay? So that's good. But do we expect you to be friends with every single person in the sanctuary? No. It's an impossibility. I, I, I would love for you to all be friendly with every person in the sanctuary. Right? I would love for you to be loving towards every person who gathers. But at some point, you're going to have to make a choice, even among these holy people, of where you make your investments and what kind of community you want to build around you and what it means to do life-on-life life discipleship and grow together. It means you're going to have to engage with one another and you're going to have to pick who and how you do that. Not everyone is entitled to the deepest places of our hearts where to be friendly with all, but friends with only some. We're to be loving to all, but to love in particular few. We can't love the crowds in the same way that we love our friends. Otherwise, we will not be good friends. Now, it's interesting. After the resurrection, Jesus gave explicit instructions to the disciples about the world around them. He said, listen, I want you to go out in the world and I want you to, to, to preach and teach the gospel of the kingdom and make disciples. I want you to do that. Speak to, them to, speak to them the truth. I want you to baptize them in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I, I want all of that to happen. Okay? So Jesus has a love for the world. Doesn't he? Question, though. How does Jesus want the world to come into contact with his love? Well, definitely through preaching. But in John 13, 35, he gets very specific. He says, if you love one another, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. The way that you relate to each other, the way that you care for one another, the way that you love each other and invest yourself into one another will be an example that is different than the world. They will know who I am by the way that you prioritize your life and develop healthy and good relationships. You say, Jeremy, I, I don't know about this. <laughs> I just, just, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that there's people that we kind of love and then people that we really love. It's people that we kind of let close and then people we kind of keep at bay. You know, it's interesting. If you look back through the Old Testament and think about even the layout of the temple, there was an outer courtyard that only the Gentiles could go into. They could not go any closer to the presence of God. They had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. And then there was the 
outer court. And women could come this far, but then they had to stop. Then men could come in and they could bring the sacrifices into this other outer court through the Nicanor gate. And they could come in and they could bring the sacrifices and the priests would be in there. But after that, they could not pass into the holy place through the door of the temple. Only the priesthood could go through the door of the temple. And then the closest place to the presence of God was reserved for only one man on one day of the year. The high priest on the Day of Atonement could then go into the holiest of holies and be the closest to God. Now, am I saying that that is prescriptive? No, but I think it's descriptive. I think even in the Old Testament, you see this idea of like there are levels of intimacy and closeness. And that it is not an unholy thing to be careful about who you let in to the most sacred places of your heart. We like to use this analogy by asking a a few questions uh, related to even your own house. Holly Dyer is the one who brought this to my attention. And by the way, for those of you who have not been tracking with us, um, on our website, each week accompanying these teachings, we have a print a printable handout or one that you can download on your phone. You can make notes and mark up if you've got an iPhone or, or whatever. But we, we've got homework for you to do to make the most of these things. And so we've got a little exercise for you to think through relationships in your life and begin to think about where you make investments in your life. I would encourage you, download it, take some time with the Lord, meditate upon it. We, we've tried to make it so that each of these exercises can be accomplished in about 15 to 20 minutes. Shouldn't take you long. So I, I, I just invite you to step into that. But this resource here uh, is, is on uh, that PDF that's available on our website. Who is at your fence? Who's somebody that you know and, and you say, okay, as it relates to my house, I've got the white picket fence out in front. The, the American dream is happening. Who do I let to my fence, but they can't come into my yard? Right? Who's at the fence? And who's in your yard? So people in the fence, these are people that you know, but are not close with. Who's in your yard? These are people that you know and would love to chat with, but maybe you wouldn't trust to get too close. Then, who's on your porch? These are people that you know and love to talk to, but they don't have access to the deepest places of your heart. And fourthly, who is in your home? These are people you know deeply and trust fully to share everything with and even confess sin to. Do you have layers of relationships? Have you identified them? And once you've identified, okay, who are my friends? Who is in that group of five? I I know that I've got the the 300 people on my friends list on Facebook. Of those, probably only 75 I would count as actual, you know, casual friendships. I might have them over for a party. Among them is only 15 I'd really want to hang out with, right? And among those 15, five I can really depend on. Who are those people in your life? Once you identify them, what do we do? Well, again, we imitate Jesus. 
We imitate Jesus in pursuing those friendships. How do we pursue them? We pursue, first of all, through time. For those of you who are note-takers, we pursue through time. Jesus spent time with his disciples. And the time that he spent was meaningful. In fact, this time with the disciples so radically shaped their love for him that they would each and every one of them literally lay down their lives for Jesus. That's how deep their friendship went. And the epistles are packed full of declarations of the apostles anticipating the moment where they would once again see Jesus face to face as they had once seen him. It was like their sole focus. They were looking forward to that moment to see him once again. It was their greatest hope. So we pursue friendships through giving time. We pursue friendships through communication. We pursue through communication. We tell them. Jesus defined for the disciples that they were his friends. He's like, you are my friends. Greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. I call you friends now, not servants. Servants don't know what the master is doing, but I've disclosed everything to you. You have my whole heart. You know my full plans. You get all of me. You are my friends. So we pursue through communication. We pursue through conflict. Did you know that Jesus had struggles with his friends? He actually got irritated with them sometimes. Sometimes they would, they would say dumb stuff and Jesus would have to rebuke them, right? They, one time they're fighting about who gets to be on the right hand and on the left hand of Jesus and Jesus turns around and he's like, guys, do, do you even know what you're asking? Are you able to drink from the same cup as me? Since the greatest among you is going to be the servant of all. You don't even understand what this whole kingdom thing is. You, you're missing it. At one point, he turns around to Peter, who on, on the one hand receives this wonderful blessing from Jesus, says, where, where Jesus turns to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven, because Peter had said, You are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And, and, and on one hand, Jesus congratulates them, and then just in, a little bit further down the road, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to die on a cross. And Peter says, not so, Lord. <laughs> not with you. And Jesus turns to Peter, the same person he had congratulated, and he says, get behind me, Satan. That seems pretty stern and harsh. They had confrontation in their friendship. And, and guys, if we're going to be friends with people, we have to work through the mud of relationships. We have to grow in our depth and our love and our care for one another. We pursue through conflict. We pursue through affection. John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You do this for one another. Serve one another. Love one another in the same way that I have loved you. We pursue through affection. 
I love, by the way, in John 13, the first verse, the way that that starts out, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. (laughs) The disciples knew that they were loved by Jesus. Pursuing through affection, pursuing through service. Jesus cared for his friends by making sure that they were growing, learning, being fed, getting sleep, and a whole host of other things that are recorded in the Gospels for us. Jesus served the disciples in love and set the standard by which they would love one another. And Jesus protected his vital friendships. He protected them from invasion. He withdrew from the crowds and took retreats with his disciples. He never let the multitudes dictate his schedule. He guarded his vital relationships from being overran. He prioritized them and he protected them. He protected them from pollution. Jesus spent his entire ministry warning the disciples about things that would harm their relationship with him and with God. The threat from religion, the leaven of the Pharisees and hypocrisy, the lack of purpose that kept the unjust steward from investing the kingdom, the ways in which Peter would be tempted. Jesus fought to keep the disciples from polluting their relationship with him. He protected it from pollution. And last but certainly not least, He protected it by his passion. The word passion literally means to suffer. And Jesus was willing to suffer at great lengths to love us as his friends. Okay, see, Jeremy, we get it. Jesus was a good friend. Why are you telling us this? Because, guys, here's what I see. I see a world that is cut up into so many different slices and pieces that we spend all of our energy in the places where our, 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 our biggest investments do not matter. If we are going to grow as people, if we are going to be healthy As people, we have to conserve the best of us for the most vital and important places. And we do that by following, by taking the easy yoke of Jesus, by coming alongside of him and saying, okay, I see how you did relationships. I'm going to do it like you did. I'm going to define and and, and prioritize these relationships over others. I want to grow in these relationships. So, As we're thinking through this, there's four final things I I, I just want you to take note of, and then we'll be done. I'm running just a little bit long. Forgive me. To be a good friend, you have to know what one is. Okay? The reason it's important to think through this is that if you don't understand what being a good friend is, you'll miss the mark in being a good one. (laughs) Right? Being a good friend means that you have to conserve and give your heart to the most important relationships in your life. To be a good friend, you have to know what one is. Second thing I want you to take note of. For those of you who are married, you can't be a good spouse without being a good friend. I'll just tell you this. Over the the last 20 years of, of pastoral ministry... Couples come in and they, they desire to get counsel. They're going through a rough season and, and whatever else. The thing that I see as the greatest common denominator in the decay of marriages is this, a loss of friendship. It's really hard 
to abuse or neglect somebody that you deeply care about. And when you neglect friendship in marriage, when you stop enjoying each other's company, you stop being purposeful about giving your time and your affection, your attention to one another, what happens is you, you end up on parallel tracks that sometimes are actually slightly pigeon-toed outward, moving away from each other over time. Friendship is a key to a healthy home. Third thing I want you to take note of. The best friendships are eternal. The best friendships are eternal. Listen. There are people that you will be friends with here that you will only be friends with here because they reject Jesus. And, and while those friendships are absolutely wonderful to enjoy and absolutely important and vital in our lives. The very best friendships don't end when our life ends here. They go on into eternity when we spend eternity with one another. The best friendships, you get to share the deepest parts of your heart. That means sharing spiritually. Not just connecting in special interests or at a soul level, but sharing the deepest part of your connection with God. When you meet in friendship in those places, you share at the deepest level of knowing another human. And I've got friends, man, from, I, I, I traveled down to you know, Honduras in a group with, of, of 31 uh, guys in a big yellow bus. <laughs> Some of those friendships, man, I have to this present day. Sometimes we don't talk for a while, but the minute that we get together, it, it, it is like, it's like no time passed at all. So pre- we talk about Jesus. And some of those friendships, guys, some of those friendships, I've watched as some of those men have apostatized. They, they, they've left the faith, faith. They've abandoned their hope in Jesus. And my heart aches for those guys. Because I want that the deepest friendships don't just last here. They go on to eternity. So can I just encourage you in something? If you have a friend right now and you recognize that that friendship is only for this life, maybe it's time you bring the gospel to that friend. Maybe it's time you say, look, I can't stand the thought of being in eternity without you. How could, how could I enjoy our friendship knowing that we can't share this together? Maybe it's time. Maybe God, by the Holy Spirit, would prompt you even now and put somebody on your heart and say, you need to share. You've been waiting. You've been putting this off. Now is the time. Last but certainly not least is this. One of the most often neglected and most important aspects of our spiritual lives is friendship with Jesus. I love theology. I do. I love learning. I'm I'm, I'm a fan of learning. But learning that doesn't bring you into the intersection of bringing your heart before Jesus, praising Him for who He is, loving Him for what He's done, interacting with him, surrendering your heart to him. Knowledge that does not lead you into deeper relationship with Jesus is useless knowledge. Because the point of that information is to cause you to grow in depth 
of love and appreciation for who Jesus is. And oftentimes, devotions are framed in this regard. Did I spend time in the Word? That's great. That's a good starting point. But that is not to be devoted. Devotion, the Word, means to give yourself to someone. Right? So the, the vehicle of the Scriptures is an opportunity for me to build friendship with Jesus. It's when I read the Word and I bring my heart before Him and I surrender myself to Him in the process. If you are not friends with Jesus, just like if you're not friends in a marriage, your relationship will wither up. It will dry up. You cannot merely intellectually pursue Him. That's only a piece of the pie. When Jesus says here, the great first commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. He's saying the whole of your being, hands lifted up in praise, on your face, in the carpet, in the privacy of your bedroom, lifting up your heart to God and loving Him. That is true and deep friendship. Listen, greater love has no man than this than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said to his disciples and he says to us, and you are my friends. I'm giving my life for you. And what I'm asking is that you would also return by offering up your life to me. He befriended his people and to use a modern phrase, it's our turn to friend him back. <laughs> Amen? Would you stand with me? Father, I know that that car alarm going off is a sign that I should end the sermon. Lord, thank you for setting the example for us. And as we take your yoke and as we prioritize our relationships, as we preserve ourselves and give ourselves in, in the most important and vital places, as we imitate you, may we find that our burden in life is decreased. It's okay that we don't maintain connection with every person. It's okay, God, that we invest ourselves in the most important relationships. As so th that value system becomes reflected in the way that we use our time, in the way that we use our emotional energy, in the way that we serve and love, God, may we find great joy, joy that is full in that process. So continue to shape and equip your people Continue to make us healthy and whole and make us like your son. In the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Make sure you grab that resource online and we'll see you again.